Well, during the Epiphany season, for six weeks, we looked at the I Am statements in the book of John, and we explored the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is the I Am, that Jesus is Yahweh. And now we are in the season of Lent, and like Robin said, it's a season where we remember our humanity, our dustiness. And so we're in a sermon series called The Humanity of Jesus, where we're looking at, yes, Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is Yahweh himself, God in flesh, who came to dwell among us. But yes, Jesus is also fully human. And there are ways that are really comforting that we can relate to him and that he can relate to us as humans. So over this season of Lent, we're investigating and exploring some of these different ways that Jesus uh, is human and the ways that these gospel stories highlight and demonstrate and show us the humanity of Jesus. So this week, we arrive at this story in Luke chapter 7, and it's one of those stories that, for me, never grows old. Like, the more I experience it, the more I read it, the more I encounter it, the more beautiful it becomes, the more sweet it becomes, the more rich it becomes. Um, new things I see, it comforts me in new ways, it challenges me in new ways. So I'm, I'm very excited this morning to unpack this story and to see the tender, loving compassion of Jesus manifested in this story. So in this story, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus had just finished uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which if you were here with us in the fall, we spent a long time, about six months, looking at in depth. And then Jesus had gone into Capernaum where the crowd and his disciples had witnessed him uh, perform this miraculous healing. And now in this story, Jesus and his disciples and a great crowd are traveling from Capernaum, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, southwest about 25 miles to a town called Nain, a small town called Nain. And what's interesting, like this is a really normal thing for people to go on journeys like this, these 25 miles would have been about a day's journey at this time. Um, but what's really interesting is participating in this journey is not only Jesus and his disciples, but Luke tells us that there's a great crowd traveling with him. A great crowd had sat under the teaching of Jesus, and they were so amazed and impressed by Jesus teaching with authority. And then they had seen Jesus perform this miraculous healing, and so they're like, man, I want to follow this dude. I want to go where he goes. I want to see what's going to happen next. So it's amazing that these 25 miles, an entire day's journey, a great crowd is traveling along with Jesus and his disciples. And as they near the town of Nain, Luke tells us that this great crowd meets outside of the town another great crowd a considerable crowd. These two crowds of people meet. Jesus, of course, is leading one crowd, his disciples, and all the people who had been impressed by him. What is this person going to do next? We want to follow this man. The other crowd is led by, as you heard when we read the text, is led by a mom who is grieving the death of her only son, who's grieving the loss of her boy. And so Jesus, leading one crowd, and a grieving mother leading another crowd, they meet. And this is 
all the things that happen, the amazing stories that take place. Um, now let's think for just a minute. Let's not just think, but imagine um, what this mom would have been experiencing in this moment. Obviously, she's mourning the loss of her son, and we know that she's, she's not just shedding some tears, but, but she's weeping bitterly um, because Jesus goes to her and he says, do not weep. So she's feeling deep sadness at the loss of her boy. But it's not only that. We know, too, that, that she's a widow. And so we don't know how long it had been, but we know that she had walked this path before when she led the funeral procession for her husband. And so it's sadness, sadness compounded on sadness that this grieving mother is experiencing. But it's also even more than that, because this woman, as we've talked about before, um, first century Palestine, it was a patriarchal society, and so her entire well-being and livelihood depended on the men and her family. And so she's, she's got to be wondering, in the midst of the deep sadness that she's experiencing, she's got to be also wrestling with worry and anxiety and fear and stress. Like, where, where is my food tomorrow going to come from? How am I going to survive? What's going to happen to me? All of a sudden, I am the most impoverished person among the impoverished. Deep sadness and deep fear and worry and anxiety that she would have been feeling, but there's even more than that. Because Culturally, during the time, it was believed that the premature death of a child was the result of some sort of sin in a parent's life, unfortunately. And so Luke points out that it's a considerable crowd following this woman, participating in this funeral procession. I wonder, though, if Luke's pointing that out because it's a, a more considerable crowd than usual. Like, I wonder, it, it, it's so sad to wonder this, but it's, it's reality. I wonder the gossip that would have been happening around town, the slander. What, what, in the, what did this woman do to deserve this? What sin exists in her life that she would lose not only her husband, but that she would also have to walk through the premature death of her son? What in the world did she do? Imagine the slander. Imagine the spectacle, unfortunately, that she would have been for the town to see. So there's also shame, deep, toxic shame that she would have been experiencing, and, and confusion, like, is there something that I did? What did I do, God, to deserve this? She's so sad, deeply sad. She's so afraid. She's filled with shame. She's confused. She's plagued with guilt. Like there really are no words to express what this woman is experiencing and going through. And then she meets Jesus. And we know, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, like you know that something's about to go on here. But imagine 
How odd of an encounter this would have been if you were this woman or a part of the funeral procession, the considerable crowd that's following her on this funeral procession. Imagine the shock. Like culturally today, if, um, if you're driving down the road and you encounter a funeral procession of vehicles, culturally, like we, we pull over, right? You, you let the funeral have right of way as a sign of respect, as a sign of honor. And in this day, the, the culture was the exact same. Like the normal thing to do would have been for Jesus and this great crowd of people following him to simply stop, stand still, and move aside so this funeral procession could process through. But Jesus has the audacity to interrupt this funeral procession. And if you were in this crowd, you, you would have been shocked. What, what's happening here? What, who is this man? Who does he think he is? What's going on? Jesus approaches the woman, interrupts the funeral procession, and he actually speaks to her, and he says, do not weep. All eyes would have been peeled on the situation. What's going on? The people following Jesus, they, like us, know something big is about to happen. We've got to watch. I just imagine how quiet everything would have been. Jesus says to this woman, do not weep. It would have been so quiet that even if you were the back of the crowd, you could hear the tenderness and the compassion in his voice. And then he walks to the bier, which is like a, um, a stretcher-like thing that was used at the time to um, carry the body. And imagine if you're one of the, um, the bearers, the pallbearers, carrying this deceased man, and he walks over and he touches it. This would have been odd and weird and striking as well uh, because Jesus would have been uh, infecting himself with the greatest, um, the highest form of ritual impurity. Like he would have, what's, what's happening here if you're one of these people? He reaches over, he touches the stretcher, and then he speaks to the dead man and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man obeys, and life floods back into his body. Imagine that crowd, every eye that was watching Jesus. Imagine how crazy things would have been. Chaos would have erupted. It says that fear seized them all, and everybody's probably screaming, what's going on? A prophet has risen among us. God himself has visited us. But watch this. This is, I want you to not miss this. In the midst of the chaos, as everybody's yelling and responding and cheering or afraid, Jesus, in a sense, dismisses all of that and still has compassion for this mother. In the midst of all the things that are happening, Jesus takes the mom's son, she takes her, he takes her boy and gives him back to his mom. He still has this compassionate gaze for her. He's still caring for her. He's still loving her. Now, I want you to see a very important pattern that shows up in Luke 7, verse 13. It's this pattern that shows up several times throughout the Gospels in stories about Jesus himself 
and in stories that Jesus tells, parables. Let me show you a few instances uh, in Jesus's life itself. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, this is the verse that we're really going to zoom in on for the next few minutes. Look at this. And when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw this widow, this grieving mom, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Now look in Matthew 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. It happens other times in the book of Matthew, but let me just show you as well in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus saw. Jesus had compassion on her. Jesus had compassion on them. And then he was moved to respond in action. This also shows up in stories that Jesus tells, parables. Let me show you a couple of instances. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is what he says. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the injured man that was beat up and left for dead on the road. And when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. And then again in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. While the son was still a long way off as he was making his journey back home, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you see the pattern? It's pretty clear. Saw, felt compassion, and then responded with some sort of appropriate action. Obviously, the gospel writers and Jesus himself want us to pick this up. They don't want us to miss this because this pattern is so explicit all over the place. See, feel compassion, and respond. So let's look at each one of those in Luke chapter 7, verse 13, for a few minutes. And in this, we're going to find a ton of challenge for you. Um, I'm so challenged by uh, these three things. But we're also going to see a lot of comfort in these three things. So first, see. See. When the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her, when this word, see, saw, shows up in this triad of things, see, had compassion, moved towards her. Um, It seems to be a unique kind of seeing. Like you can see something, and then you can really see something. You can see something, and you can kind of like make, make mental observations about what you're seeing, and then you can really see something in such a way that, that it moves you, seeing and then feeling. And that, that obviously seems to be what's happening here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus sees an utterly hopeless, grieving, weeping, sad, afraid mom, and he's moved. Jesus really sees her, right? Like imagine the scene, these two great crowds, so tons of people, 
And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all these people, in the midst of what probably would have been a lot of chaos, Jesus hones in on her. He looks her in the eyes, and he sees her. He really sees her. Look at this um, quote that I put in your bulletin. I think Henry Nouwen, in this quote, gets at this sort of seeing way better than I could. So let's just read it. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Full immersion in the condition of being human. Jesus sees this woman who is in deep pain, and he sees her in such a way that Jesus experiences some of the pain that she herself is walking in and experiencing. But, if you're honest, seeing in this sort of way is really scary and uncomfortable because it means seeing pain and then actually experiencing that pain yourself. It means seeing something outside of you, external, and then internalizing it in such a way that you experience that pain yourself. And none of us like to experience pain so we're not very good at seeing in this sort of way. We're good at seeing things, like mentally observing things, but this sort of seeing, the way that Jesus sees throughout the Gospels, the way that Jesus sees this woman, we refuse to engage in that sort of way. Let me give you three reasons why I think this is true, or three ways uh, that we refuse to see. Um, first, we refuse to see by denying denying. We see things in front of us, we mentally observe them, but we deny what's really going on. Like there's tragedy happening in front of you. Things are unraveling at the seams in front of you. Things are unraveling at the seams in your own life, and you refuse to see what's really taking place. We live in denial. We also minimize. You refuse to accept the gravity of the tragedy or pain that's happening in front of you. You minimize it. In the Southeast, we do this all the time uh, through religion, right? Like, brother, I see, do you? I see the pain that you're going through. But just remember that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes, right? Like, yes, that's true. Romans, I believe in Romans eight twenty-eight. But can we believe in and hold that Romans eight twenty-eight is true and also see the gravity and the depth of a person's pain and not use Romans eight twenty-eight and other parts of the Bible and religion to minimize what's happening in front of you? We deny, we minimize 
But then you also insulate yourself. Like, you know the broken places in Memphis that you're just going to avoid, right? Like, I'm just not going to drive through that place. You know the people in your life to avoid. Being in relationship with this person just sounds like too much, so I'm not going to go there. So you insulate yourself. You remove yourself. You put on blinders. You stay in places that you feel like are safe, which, ironically, I think is just another form of living in denial because there's pain and there's brokenness everywhere. Other people are just better at minimizing or denying it, right? You can't truly insulate yourself. Those are ways that we refuse to see pain that's happening in front of us in the way that Jesus sees it. Jesus here doesn't deny the gravity of what this woman is experiencing. Jesus doesn't try to minimize it by giving her a bunch of Bible verses. Jesus doesn't insulate himself like, we're just going to avoid this and go around and not have to deal with the messiness of this situation. Jesus sees her and he has compassion on her, he fully immerses himself in the human experience, like Henry Nouwen says. And then, because Jesus sees her in this way, he has compassion on her. Seeing in this way will always move you to deeply feel. Now, I want to unpack this word, um, had compassion on. It's a really interesting Greek word behind our English word. So let me go Bible nerd on you. There's some humor here too, so this, stay with me. Um, the Greek word behind this phrase, had compassion on, is splachnosomai, which comes from the root, stay with me, splachnon, splachnon, which means, yeah, say it with me if you want, splachnon. Like, you can't help but want to say that word, you know? Like, people are just, people are just spontaneously, splachnon, splachnon, which means this. Once I tell you what it means and describe it to you more in depth, you're not going to want to say it quite as much. It means the inward parts, the heart, affections, the seat of feelings. Let me show you a few instances of how the King James Version of the Bible deals with this word, Okay? Um, first of all, from Philippians chapter 1, hear the words of St. Paul. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Splachnon. Hear a couple that are even better from Philemon, um, verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love. KJV, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by the brother. <laughs> and then this is my favorite, verse 20 of Philemon. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. <laughs> the KJV I think is actually doing us a service here that um, modern English translations are trying to kind of like tidy up a little bit because this feels humorous and a little bit inappropriate. Um, 
what the KJV is getting to and what this Greek word behind bowels and had compassion on, um, splachnon, what this word is getting at is the fact that when you feel things, like you actually feel it physically. Do you know the phrase like, man, that was so gut-wrenching. That's getting at this word splachnon. And I don't just mean like that play in sports was so gut-wrenching. I mean like, have you ever seen something that's like you truly, like you, it physically makes your stomach hurt. It was gut-wrenching. I felt that in my bowels. That's the sort of feeling that Jesus is experiencing here in Luke chapter 7 and all throughout the Gospels. Jesus sees things and he so experiences the pain of those things he's seeing. He so feels this grieving woman's sadness and fear and shame and pain that it, that it physically moves him. It's literally gut-wrenching to Jesus. Maybe Jesus would have doubled over in pain. This is so, oh, this is so sad. This is so tragic. We can't deny it. We can't minimize it. We can't hide ourselves from it. So let me just face it and feel it in the deepest parts of me. That's the way Jesus has compassion on this woman. And then, or let me read this quote, actually, from Paul Miller. And let me show you this book. Man, I love this book. Um, Paul Miller, he wrote a book that many of you may have read called A Praying Life. Um, this book may be even better than that. It's called Love Walked Among Us. Um, if any of this is moving or helpful, you're like, man, I want to I wanna meditate on this more than pick up this book. They have a few copies at the book table, Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. Here's one thing he says here. When Jesus, or Jesus has shown us how to love, look, feel, and then help. If we help someone, but don't take the time to look at the person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love is cold. And if we look and feel, but we don't do what we can to help, our love is cheap. Love does both. Love sees, and then it feels deeply in a gut-wrenching way, and then it responds in action. If we see and help, but don't feel what the other person is feeling or experiencing, then our love is cold. And I think that many of you are really good at practicing cold love. And I'm the chief among you. Let me say that. So before I worked at Christ City, I worked for a great ministry here in the city that many of you are connected to called SOS. And uh, when I, uh, SOS um, helps neighbors throughout our city um, who are unable to make much-needed home repairs, like a roof that is leaking in such a way that water is pouring in, and the house isn't safe, it's not warm. SOS partners with neighbors like that to help them make those home repairs so that homes can be dry, 
so that homes can be safe, so that homes can be warm, so that people can have their basic human needs met. So I worked at SOS for several years, and when I was first there as a college student, I would see these people who were in very, very much pain, and I would, I would be moved. But as I worked there more and more, that just became too painful and too hard. Like it's just really hard to experience that and to feel that over and over and over every day. Like a dozen phone calls a day and doing multiple home visits a day and sitting down with neighbors who are experiencing real pain. And so over time, my love grew very cold. I was really good at seeing, like mentally observing what's happening here. And I was really good at responding. But I wasn't good at feeling with someone the pain that they were experiencing. My love was very cold. And I think that's probably the case for many of you too. Like a lot of you moved to the city because you're amped about serving and like we want to see change happen here in Memphis. And even if at one point, like you really did feel deeply when you saw and interacted with pain and despair, that just becomes really hard. And so let's just delete that part and see what's happening and help. But that's cold love, and that's not the love of Jesus. True love sees, feels, and then moves to help. So Jesus here has compassion on her, and then he moves to her, and he says to her, do not weep. And then he takes action to meet her need, and he actually raises her son back to life. Jesus moves towards action. Paul Miller calls love that sees and feels but doesn't respond with some sort of appropriate action. Paul Miller calls this cheap love. And he calls it cheap love because real love, the love that Jesus demonstrates for us, always costs you something. Real love will always cost you something. And if it doesn't, then your love is cheap. So we, we looked earlier at um, the story of the Good Samaritan, which is a familiar parable um, that you've probably heard before. A story about a man who was traveling on the road to Jericho, which is a dangerous road because it's mountainous and rocky and there are easy places for robbers and groups of robbers um, to hide and you'd be traveling, walking alone. There'd be no one around you for miles and miles. So it was just a lot of easy targets. And so this man is walking this road. And like what happened so often, um, robbers came out, attacked him, stole his stuff, and left him for dead. And then in the story that Jesus is telling, um, after some time passes, this man is still holding on to life by a thread. And a priest walks by. A priest who sees the man, sees him, like observes what's happening, takes stock of the situation, moves to the other side, and continues on his path. I don't know if the priest felt anything or not, 
but his love was cheap. And then some time passes, and a Levite comes. So these are the religious professionals of the day, priests and Levites. These were the people that first century Jews would have admired and respected. A Levite comes along, takes stock of the situation, sees the man who's bloodied and hurt, hanging on for life, and continues on his way and does nothing. Some time passes, and as the story goes, a Samaritan comes upon this man. Samaritan, unlike uh, the priest and the Levite, they were not well-respected people of this day. They were um, a minority that was racially despised. The Samaritan comes across this man, sees what's happening here. Remember the passage? He saw him, he had compassion on him, and he moved towards him and bandaged his wounds. And then the rest of the story is he actually takes the man to an inn, and he tells the innkeeper, whatever it costs, I got this. I want this man to be well. The Samaritan sees, he feels, and he responds in action. Real love always costs something. The good Samaritan, it it literally cost him money, right? Like he had to pay the innkeeper whatever this costs, however long he needs to stay here, I've got it. True love always costs something. It also cost him a ton of convenience. Jamin talked about this last week. It's just really clear, following Jesus just does not seem like the most convenient thing in life. So deal with that. Love is never efficient. Love is never convenient. I don't know what the Samaritan was doing. Jesus doesn't tell us that. I don't know if um, he had somewhere to be, if he had a time that he had to be somewhere. But truly loving this man cost him that. It cost him his convenience. It was also, if you think about it, it was also probably a really dangerous thing for him to do. Think about if, like think about what people might think or say if they see a Samaritan walking into town carrying this bloodied, beat-up man, like it would have been really easy for people to point the finger at him. It was a really dangerous thing. Like this could literally have cost him his life. Martin Luther King Jr., in his famous I've Been to the Mountaintop speech that he gave here in Memphis just before he was assassinated, Comments on this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Listen to what he says. It's so profound. He says, and so the first question that the priest asks, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Because I know it'll cost me something. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, And he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Not what will happen to me because I know it will cost me. But if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Because true love always sees the other person and feels and experiences what they're feeling and moves to help them even at great cost to yourself. A 
I have to share this story. Um, I'm so encouraged. I think you'll all be encouraged too. Um, so we've done a lot of work over the past year as a church um, to really be about mercy and justice in the city in the ways that we think the church is called to be about mercy and justice in the city. Um, a couple years ago, if you've been with us for that long, um, we did something called the Renew Memphis Campaign, and we promised, like, we've got to put our money where our mouth is, and we've got to be about bringing refreshment to the city, pursuing justice and loving mercy. And with that money, we are able to hire a staff person, Rachel Robinson, to oversee some of these initiatives and efforts and to build this culture more and more into our church's DNA. Um, and I'm so proud of the work that Rachel and her team, uh, Jamin, we brought him on as a teaching pastor uh, to help with a lot of these initiatives. He gets this at his core and he lives it just out of who he is. So we have a lot to learn from him in these things. I'm, I'm so proud of the work that they're doing. They put together a team of people who are working on establishing and building and growing this culture in our church, and we're starting to finally see some fruit of that. Just this week, I was in the office, and Rachel and uh, Judy Lewis, a member of our benevolence team, had a meeting with someone who's connected to our church. Kendall serves with a local nonprofit called Young Lives. She's gotten up here before to share stories about her work with this ministry, Young Lives. And one of her friends through Young Lives uh, is an 18-year-old mom and recently got a new job with FedEx. She's so excited, and she recently got a new apartment. But she needed some help getting her MLGW utilities cut on at the apartment. And so we were so excited to be able to help with that as a church. And um, Rachel had the opportunity to spend some time with her to ride over to MOGW's uh, Bill Payment Center on Summer, which is a really, like, hard place to be at, uh, like, really inconvenient. Uh, as Rachel was spending time with her, she realized through hearing stories that she's moving into an apartment that has absolutely no furniture, nothing, not a bed for her or for her three-year-old child, um, nothing for the kitchen, no sofa, nothing for the living room. And so it moved Rachel and so working with some other ministry partners in the city this week, we were able to furnish her apartment. I'm, I'm just, I'm so proud of that story that demonstrates seeing, feeling, and moving and responding in action. And what I long for is for our church to experience more and more stories like this, being, bringing refreshment and compassion and the love of Jesus to our city. As I close, I just want for you to see how this story um, isn't just some like ethereal, disconnected thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's true that it did, and it's true that it's so inspiring and moving and can challenge us and shape us as people who are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus and following him in the ways of Jesus. But I want you to see, too, that this story is deeply personal. Because it shows us how Jesus really sees people, really sees people where they are. And he moves in to be with them where they are. 
and he feels where they are. All the pain of it, all the difficulty, all the loneliness of it. Jesus feels it. He has compassion. And then even in ways that cost him, Jesus responds in action. And I want you to see that this is this widow's story, this mom's story in Nain. This is the Samaritan story and the story of the man that he helped. But this is also your story. I want you to see, I want you to experience the compassionate gaze of Jesus towards you. It's not just this objective thing that we have written for us, how Jesus saw this woman, he had compassion on her, and he raised her son back to life. But I want you to see that it's a personal thing. I want you to know and experience the reality that Jesus sees you too. Jesus sees you. Like he doesn't just know that you're there, like mentally observing, like yes, I, I know about her. I know about him, but he sees you. He really, truly, deeply sees you. And even at great cost to himself, like the words that Robin spoke over us in the assurance a few minutes ago, even at great cost to himself, Jesus moved towards you in love. By his wounds, we are healed. My prayer for us is that we would be so moved by Jesus, by following him, by walking on his path, that we would begin to live this way in, G in Memphis, that we would see people, that we would have compassion, and that we would respond. And so it's appropriate now that we get to end this time by coming to communion. Because at communion, we, in a way that like my words can't make sense of, we get to interact with, and we get to encounter, and we get to meet with this Jesus who sees you, who moves towards you, who loves you, who has compassion on you, and who responds in action. We get to meet with him. And we get to ingest that in such a way that it can change us from the inside out. So let me pray for us before we come to the communion table. Lord, thank you for the story that shows the tenderness, the love, the compassion, a very human side of Jesus. And my prayer is that we would know the love that you have for each one of us, that we would know and experience the ways that you see us and that you know us, that you love us, that you have compassion on us. And my prayer is, as well is that we would be a body of people who live in Memphis. And every day we encounter people who are in pain, systems that are broken. Lord, may we not have cold or cheap love when we see these things but would we have the courage to experience the pain, all the feelings, 
And would we respond in action so that our city could experience the love of Jesus more and more? I pray in his name. Amen.